Hello comrades and welcome back to Marxist Voice, the podcast of Socialist Appeal. For this week's episode, we've got a talk by Alan Woods, given at the recent Revolution Festival, on the topic of war and revolution, a world on the brink. Across the world, the masses are mobilising in the fight for a better world. Industrial struggle, political instability and growing radicalism among workers and young people are gathering momentum. So in this session at the Revolution Festival, Alan Woods analysed the world situation, its main trends and features, and outlined a perspective for the future which Marxists can use to orientate their work in the coming period. Unfortunately, due to technical difficulties, the first five minutes or so of this talk is unavailable for publication, um, so the, the start might be a bit abrupt, but nevertheless, I hope you enjoy this week's episode of Marxist Voice, brought to you by Socialist Appeal. Intelligent man, Paul Krugman, one of the more intelligent of them, there aren't many of them, one of the more intelligent bourgeois economists, he said the following. He said, uh, if you look at this edition, he said, the fact is that for the last three decades, macroeconomic theory has been, and I quote, right, in the best case, spectacularly useless, and in the worst case, positively harmful. Paul Klugman, you can check up the quote yourself. It's there. It's useless. You find no It's useless searching the, the bourgeois journals to find any explanation as to what the former phenomenon that we are, we are dealing with. But we, we, the, only, the only way, and that's the main thrust of my argument, which I hope to demonstrate to your satisfaction this evening, the only way you can make sense of, of what is occurring is by, this, the, by the method of Marxism. Dialectical materialism, that's a very precise instrument which enables us, and that gives us a colossal advantage. I'll tell you what, read my lips, okay? It's only this which separates us from the rest of the labor movement and the rest of society. Only this, nothing else, okay? It's only this that gives us the right to exist as a separate tendency of the labor movement. That is the superiority of the Marxist analysis and Marxist ideas. We'll deal with that a little bit more later on. Now, if you look at the bourgeois, it's quite interesting. I mean, I could spend all evening quoting, you'd find it quite amusing. I don't have the time or the inclination. It's sometimes, it sometimes, it often occurs to me, you know what, we are the, we are the only optimistic people in society. It's a fact. Everyone is plunged in the deepest pessimism, starting with the bourgeoisie themselves, who've lost faith, as a matter of fact. They've lost all confidence in the future of their own system. You read their press, the serious press I'm referring to, like the Financial Times. You know, it's, it's, it's full, of, full of the most pessimistic appraisals you can imagine. Many quotes, but I haven't got time. One or two later on. But there's one, one thing which did attract my attention. There is one bourgeois economist which at least I find at least interesting, shall we say, interesting. He is a rather, shall we say, uh, extravagant personality uh, by the name of Nouriel Rubini. Have you heard of him? He's a professor of economics in America. He's a well-known e e economist. The other economists hate, hate his guts. They call him Dr. Doom, only for one reason that he alone was capable of predicting the, the, the crisis of 2008. The others did not. They, they predicted precisely nothing. They, they never forgave him for that. He put their nose on the joint, you know. And he's just, he's just, he constantly annoys them because he, he tells the truth, insofar as a bourgeois economist is able to tell the truth. And he's just produced a new book. I've not read it yet. I might get hold of a copy. Someone will buy it for me. It's, it, it's, it's published in America recently, this is, and it's called, the title is very interesting for a start, Mega Threats. Mega Threats, two dots, the 10 trends that imperil our future and how to survive them. He's very good on the first part, not quite so hot on the second part, but we'll come to that, as he's honest enough to, to admit. We'll leave with that later. Now, 
it's, it's, I can't deal with this, uh, this book in, in, in detail. It won't, won't help his reputation with his fellow economists very much. I can, I can say that. But I say, at the end of it, I won't list all the mega threats. I mean, you buy the book, you'll find out. It's, they're clear enough. And then he asks, what can be done? What can be done to avert what he's predicting is uh, the mother of all uh, debt-propelled debt, debt, debt crises. That's what he's predicting. He says, he says, absolutely inevitable, given the present situation. What can be done to counter the, the, the mega-threats? Answer, uh, not much. <laughs> not much. And he concludes, I can't resist quoting this. He concludes with, with a suitably dark warning to the bourgeoisie. Expect many dark days, my friends. This is Rubini speaking, not Alan Woods. This is Rubini. And that happens to be correct. I haven't got time to go into it in detail, but there we are. But it, you see, it isn't just Rubini that says this. If you look, you just, you don't just open, look, try an experiment tomorrow morning. Just open the FT, the financial test. Look anywhere you like. You will see a, a, a plethora of the most pessimistic, the most dismal, uh, predictions. The, in, in July, for example, not long ago, the IMF in its report warned the world is in a vo volatile period, well that we know, a volatile period, economic, geo geopolitical and ecological changes all impact the global outlook. That's the IMF speaking. And here's an even more interesting man by a man by the name of Larry Summers. You may or may not have heard of him. He's an American economist and a former, a former United Secretary of the Treasury who was quoted on the 6th of October. That's a couple of weeks ago, isn't it? He was quoted saying the following. This is interesting. What I said earlier about being different turning points and so on. He says the following. I can remember previous moments of equal or even greater gravity for the world economy. There you are. Equal or even greater gravity for the world. But I cannot remember moments when there were as many separate aspects and as many cross currents as there are right now. And he goes on to explain what he's talking about. Look what is going on, and this is Summer speaking. Look what is going on in the world. A very significant inflation issue across much of the world, and certainly much of the developed world. A significant monetary tightening underway. A huge, this rising interest rates and so on, a, a huge energy shock, you know all about that. A, a huge en en energy shock, where are we? Especially in the European economy, which is both a real shock, obviously, and an inflation shock. Growing concern about Chinese policy making and Chinese economic performance, China's slowing down rapidly. And indeed, also concerns about its intention towards Taiwan. We'll speak about that later. And then, of course, the ongoing war in Ukraine. Add all that up, and yes, you get a very, very serious position. As the Financial Times, again, in an article which was headlined, IMF forecasts very painful outlook, very painful outlook for global economy, published on October the 11th, which says... As the global economy is headed for stormy waters, financial turmoil may well erupt. Do I need to add any more? I think I'll rest my case. But just check it out for yourselves. In other words, the entire, shall we say, all the strategists of capital are filled with deep foreboding concerning and pessimism concerning the future. You can, you can reply, you can repeat these examples at, at will. But I think I've... I've shown the point. But even more significant than what the bourgeois economists, what the strategists of capital are saying, is what's actually happening on the markets. After all, this is the market economy, isn't it? Which is supposed to regulate everything, isn't it? And you see now, what you see now is extreme volatility in the markets. That's, that's not an accident. Because what this shows, what the market, the markets don't show you what, what's happening in the real economy. It's, a set, it's another world. The markets got their own laws and their own, uh, their own fantastic e existence, you know. But you see, that, that's, that, that, that's what, it, what they do show is the morale of the bourgeoisie, the nervousness. The nervousness in the financial market was clearly exposed, by the way, 
in the, in the, in the, in the uh, recent crisis in Britain, where Liz Trust, I think you've heard of her, Liz Trust and her associated gang of escaped lunatics and half-wits, who now determine the fate of the British people, uh, took certain decisions, the so-called mini-budget, which immediately caused absolute chaos in the market. And by the way, there's only one way you can describe the reactions of the the immediate reaction of the market to this, these measures, and that word is panic. And one has to look at this. I will not waste your valuable time by attempting to analyze the weird psychology of the of the politicians that took those decisions in, in England. That's, that's more a subject for a qualified psychiatrist than for than for myself. What interests me is something else. What interests us is, is, is something quite different to that. What interests is the, the way that the market reacted, the, the, reacted to this. You know, it was uh, bond prices in, in, in countries as different as the U.S. and Italy veered violently, it says, in response to every twist and turn of the convoluted nonsense that was coming out of, of London. And that was not an accident. That's the point. The same Larry Summers that I just mentioned uh, not long ago was again quoted in the Financial Times as follows, quote, the destabilization wrought by British errors will not be confined to Britain. In other words, this was not just a little local difficulty. This was a mortal threat to the entire financial system of the entire world. That's the interesting point. The IMF, therefore, was forced to intervene, as you know, to twist the arms of the, of the people in London, which they did very effectively. They got the means of doing it, of course. And Trust was, trust was, for, was forced to swallow her words in a humiliating retreat, ditching the whole insane plan that she'd worked out, that she'd worked out together with her chancellor, quasi quarting. You heard of him? You had, yes, I mean, just as well somebody said, he's gone now anyway. <laughs> now, Kwasi Kwarteng, by the way, was a close personal friend and co-thinker and, and confid a confidant of, of Liz, Liz Twist. But there's an old proverb, you know. What do you do when you see a man falling? Silence. Give him a push. <laughs> and, that, and, that's, and that's just what she did. Uh, she didn't hesitate at throwing uh, t 10 seconds at throwing her bosom pal and confident under the, under the first available London bus. But then what, then what are friends for after all, you know? Now, you see, there's an unfortunate thing. All right, they retreated, they ditched everything, they changed everything, they surrendered. Okay, there's one problem, however. You see, financial credibility, like virginity, once it's lost... It is rather difficult to restore, you see. <laughs> it is, it is. I'm telling you, it's a f biological fact and, a, and an economic It's rather difficult to restore again. So therefore, they, they've got Britain's reputation now as a world power and a stable economic regime, is, it, it lies in the gutter. It's in shreds. And this is, imp this is quite important because the UK, after all, enjoyed a reputation for stability. Political stability, social stability, and economic stability. I won't trespass on that because I think Rob is dealing with this tomorrow night. He'll deal with it at length. But the fact of the matter is that they haven't recovered, by the way. Even today it was, it was reported the market is still very jittery about Britain. Britain has now got the same reputation approximately as dead-ridden, crisis-ridden Italy. And very soon, if they were not, not careful, they'll have the same reputation as Pakistan. But there we are. Now, you see, the, the, reason, the, the point is this, what you must think about. The, the, the reason for the, the, the panic in the markets was the implications of a, of a financial crash in the city of London, which, after all, is one of the hubs of the, of, of the international fan, financial community. You see, now, nowadays, it's hands up all of you that have ever heard of the uh, Credit Anstalt Bank. Hands up. One, two, three, four, not many, I thought so. Because nowadays it's, it's rather forgotten that the, 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 the Great Depression of the 1930s was actually sparked off by the collapse of a bank in Vienna known as the Credit, Credit, Credit Anstalt Bank. I think it was in May 1931, which immediately, 
immediately caused a, a domino effect all over Europe, bringing down the whole system and, and caused, that, was a, that provoked in turn the, the, the downward spiral between 1931 and 1933, the Great Depression, and so on. But history can and does repeat itself. We know the nonsense, oh yeah, can't be repeated. We've learned our lesson, yes, we've all. It reminds me of, I've known certain comrades, good friends of mine, you know, uh, they go to a party, they have a great time, they have a drink, they feel fine, they have another drink, feel even better. They have several more drinks and they feel wonderful. Then the next morning, they wake up with their head in their hands. And what do they say? Never again, never again. I've learned my lesson, never again. Yeah, the same thing happens, and the same thing happens every time there's a crisis with the capitalists, you know. We've learned our lesson, we've learned, we've learned the lesson of history, we've learned, yes, until the next crisis, you've learned your lesson. You see, Hegel once said, the only thing that one learns when you study history is that nobody has ever learned anything from history. And that's why history repeats itself. Marvelous uh, idea. Now, the present crisis, I can't deal with it in any detail, but it's obvious. This crisis is somewhat detailed to the last, different to the last crisis. That was a crisis of debt. This is a crisis in which you, debt still exists. Colossal, ask, ask Liz Truss about that. Colossal, uh, unmanageable debts are combined with high and rising inflation. Now that's the point. Because this inflation, my friends, was not supposed to happen. They learned the lesson, you see. There wasn't gonna be any, they, and there wasn't inflation for a while. They couldn't believe their luck, they couldn't, be, they couldn't believe their luck. The economy is going forward, there's full employment and so on, but prices are not rising. Adam Booth wrote an interesting article, a theoretical journal about that. And the conclusion of these imbeciles, these bourgeois economists drew, they're complete clowns, is that uh, inflation, the, the beast of inflation had been defeated and there wasn't going to be any inflation and there wasn't going to be, therefore, no, no, no interest rises. This would go on forever and ever. Amen. Did it? No, on the contrary. Beneath the surface, there were reasons, Adam explained it. There were reasons, specific reasons, why inflation temporarily was kept down, didn't disappear. It was held under the surface. They distorted the markets, actually. By, by state intervention, they distorted the markets. They, they held it down. But the underlying inflationary pressures were still there. They hadn't disappeared. They hadn't gone anywhere. And now, of course, they burst, as inevitably would happen at a certain point. They burst to the surface and uh, causing colossal crisis, provoking disruption in the supply chains, destroying investment plans, eroding savings, collapsing living standards, and causing general chaos, which must be dealt with somehow. Now, the IMF and the World Bank are demanding measures to deal with inflation, so they say. I don't think these measures will work anyway, but they're demanding increased interest and so on. This will cause a recession. Factory closures, bankruptcies, mass unemployment, steeply falling living standards. That's the perspective. They'll bring it on themselves but by increasing interest rates, which is what they're doing. In fact, the World Bank and the IMF are complaining that these measures are not sufficient. They need more, more austerity, more cuts. And this is, this is the way. That's why Rubini says correctly, the world, to, to quote Trotsky's expression, is tobogganing to disaster with its eyes closed towards the mother of all debt crises, so he says. And that's correct. Now, there's, there's, uh, there are a number, of the, 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 it is very difficult to know exactly the, the timing of events. You can't do that. That's asking too much of perspectives. That's, for that, you need a, a crystal ball, which is the common says we don't yet possess. We're trying to get one, second-hand markets, but we haven't come up with them so far. You know, you can't be precise. Perspectives, let's be clear about it. Perspectives is not a finished plan as to what is going to happen in the future. That's not what it is. It's a working hypothesis. That's all. Nothing magical about it. It's a working hypothesis where you work out, try to work out things as best you can on the basis of the information you possess. Now, it doesn't always work out as you imagine. Therefore, you've got to adjust it, change it, alter it, perhaps scrap it all together and start again. So what? So what? It depends. But it is necessary to have some kind of a perspective, some kind of idea 
as to where we are heading. And there are a number of things we can say with absolute certainty. In particularly, the impact. That's what interests. I'm not interested in theological discussions about the ins and outs of the economy. We'll leave that to the stupid economists in, uh, in uh, LSD or whatever it is. But um, no, but there are certain things that, that we are interested in. And that's what effect does all this colossal, unparalleled instability have on consciousness? And by God, it has an effect. It is having an effect. I repeat what I said. When people are talking about these things in the bus stops, it's not a trivial matter. When people are taking interest in politics, that's not a trivial matter. It is precisely what Trotsky said. It's the molecular process of socialist revolution, my friends. Neither more nor less. Particularly the cost of living crisis, inflation, it has a colossal effect. You know this. Where people in Britain and many other countries, all countries, are trembling in relation to whether they will survive this winter, whether they can pay the fuel, the, 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 the energy bills, whether they can feed the kids. It's a fact. It's a human tragedy. In, in many cases, in, particularly in the, the poor countries, it's a matter of life or death. Millions of people are going to face death by starvation as a result of this. Food prices and so on and so forth. It's a serious matter. And to think that that's going to, that's going to happen without the profoundest social and political consequences, you've got to be living on the planet Mars, not the planet Earth. And I'm not just referring to Africa, America, Latin America, and the Middle East, and, and so on. No. And when I say all countries, I mean all countries, including the USA. Where inflation is having a big effect. I've got a quote of that effect uh, somewhere. Britain, of course. And it is, it, it, for example, in, in, a, in a country like Italy, it's undoubtedly a big factor, the fact that people's pensions are being, uh, even older people, not just young people, are affected by this. There was a big demonstration in Spain, I was informed just a couple of days ago, a mass demonstration of pensioners. You know, but these people are facing a dire problem. And therefore, this is the kind of thing which forces people to come to terms with reality, which they didn't want to do, but they have to come to it. It's the, the inflation, it affects the middle class. Small businesses are facing bankruptcy, not just in the, in the distant future, but right now they're facing it. You see it on the TV every night. I, won't, I will not deal with that. And therefore, this, 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 is, this, is the, this is the future of enormous economic, social, and political instability. That's what you see in Britain right now. And this, my friends, will have the most profound consciousness. Is having, has happened, and it will have a, a, greater, a, greater, a greater result in the future. Now, this brings me to the other point. As if that wasn't enough. In the midst of all this general morass of chaos, you get other contradictions coming to the fore. Other contradictions which are which are threatening the existence of capitalism, particularly the war in Ukraine. I don't have a great deal of time to deal with this in detail. We've dealt with it in numerous articles. We'll deal with it again. It's a moving picture, okay? So it's difficult to predict. I don't uh, pretend that I can predict what the result of this war will be because there are too many, uh, too many variables. It's, it's a moving equation. You know, Napoleon, uh, Napoleon Bonaparte knew a, th a few things about war. And he made a very interesting comment. He said, war is the most complex of all equations. It is very complex. And therefore, you can't be precise about making predictions. But I will be, pre I will be precise about one prediction. And that's the prediction which is being put forward day and night, night and day, all hours on the television, the press, and the radio. And it's been saying, they've been saying this since last February. It is a very simple prediction, a very simple prognosis of the West, of the imperialists and so on. Very simple. Uh, Ukraine is going to win and Russia is going to lose, period. Okay, that's the prediction. That is one prediction, my friend, you can rule out. You can rule it out. Even despite the fact, I'm conscious of the fact that last September, the Ukrainians managed to stage uh, an offensive which was successful. That's beyond a doubt. By the way, let's give the devil his due. The Ukrainian uh, troops are, have fought with the conspicuous bravery and so on, which has got to be, rec I recognize that fact. I recognize that fact, and it, has, it, has, it is an important element. Morale is always an important element. Yes, but is it enough? 
No. No. Is it enough to win one battle? No. Is it enough to win ten battles? No. The fundamental question you have to ask is, does it change the fundamental balance of forces? And it does not. For, for everything they say, it does not. The, the Russians have, have retreated to a more defensible line, and it's still not clear, but it will become clear. And Putin is mobilized, is in the process of mobilizing 200,000 new men into the army who will be available. I don't think that he can complete that until the, maybe mid-December. It's hard to say precisely. But you better believe it. The presence of 200,000 new troops on the ground is bound to make a considerable difference. I note that the Ukrainian advance has already been it's slowing down. Now they talk about, yesterday they talked about conspicuous victories, which they were. Now they only talk about taking this or that village, which is hardly significant. It's been slowed down, and it'll be, in my opinion, it'll be slowed down. To, they, may, they may win some more. They may win some more. They may even win some, some significant victories, but it will not be maintained. And in the meantime, the Russians are mobilizing. In the meantime, they are bombing infrastructure, which they didn't do to date, by the way. They've not done. It's not true that they've been bombing, deliberately bombing civilian targets. It's entirely untrue. Why should they? Nor is it true to date, up until now, that they've been bombing infrastructure. They haven't. They could have done, but they didn't. They are now. And therefore, the whole thing is, the whole thing is being stepped up. Now, you see, Clausewitz. You ever heard of Clausewitz? You heard of Marx? I think. Hands up all of you who've heard of Marx. One or two. There we are. That's good. Bravo. Hands up all of you that have heard of Clausewitz. Ah, I see that we are surrounded by intellectuals in this room. <laughs> I feel intimidated. <laughs> Clausewitz, the great uh, ge military genius. I think the man was a genius. And by the way, he was not a Marxist, of course. He was a reactionary pr Prussian aristocrat. But he studied Hegel. That's the point. He made a great study of Hegel, and he pursued a dialectical method to analyze war, which he did with great genius in my opinion. And he said the following. War is the most marvelous definition, famous definition. War, my friends, is only the continuation of politics by other means. That's all it is. And ultimately, wars are not decided by guns and so on, but they're decided by politics. What is necessary is for us to analyze the war aims, define the war aims of the different uh, contending powers, and you can predict in advance that the, the, the hostilities will only end to the degree that the war ends are either achieved or one or the other sides are exhausted by the conflict. That's a simple prediction. Now, if you, if you look at Zelensky, his war aims are perfectly clear. Is to, to, he wants to drive the Russians out, not just out of Donbass, which they haven't yet been able to do, and I think they will not be able to do, but to drive them out of the Crimea which is now officially part of Russia. Now, that is a dream. I'll make a prediction now. <laughs> Crimea will never go back to the Ukraine, this side of the Socialist Revolution. It's, it's, that's, that's, that's evident. That's evident. But you see, the views that, that his views are shared, of course, by the hawks. There are differences of opinion. They try to present a, a united front. There is no united front, in, in, in fact. There's the hawks like Poland and the Baltic states. They got their own agenda, and they they are all in favour of uh, of an outright Ukrainian uh, victory. The Russians must be defeated. They keep on repeating this. There must be no deal until the Russians are defeated. And of course, the certified lunatics recently escaped from a lunatic asylum that are present in Number Ten Downing Street. You know, the chauvinist imbeciles. The Brexiteer, they are, they are lunatics, by the way. First time in my life. I mean, I've been under all kinds of governments. Good ones, bad ones, well, not, not, not so bad, not so good. More or less intelligent, more or less stupid. First time in my life I've been governed by a government of lunatics. Certifiable lunatics. But there we are. I'm not joking. You think I'm joking? I'm not. Look at Rhys Mogg. Jesus Christ, he should be locked up in a padded cell. The other day he was physically bullying uh, MPs into, into the... Uh, I, I'm taking Rob's remarks, so I better change the subject quick. Um, 
Yeah, these were peace. And the, their scenario, their scenario is even better. They want not just that Russia should be defeated, it should be driven back to, 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 to beyond the Russian frontier, and uh, Putin must be overthrown, and uh, if possible, the Russian Federation should be broken up into its constituent parts. Wonderful. Bravo. Yes, you and whose army? What are you talking about? These people are living in a dream world, for goodness gracious sake. I mean, it's an insult to the intelligence. And by the way, it's based, all this, pro this war is really a, two wars. There's a war on the battlefield, and there's the information war. I've never seen anything like it in my life. That the amount of lies and propaganda and distortions and stupidities that they say, it defies belief. For a start, hang on to your seats, don't get excited. I'll tell you something you don't know. Putin is in no danger of being overthrown whatsoever. As a matter of fact, his support, indicated by the polls, you can say that they were rigged, they're not maybe to some extent, but not that extent, has risen considerably. There is support for, for the war in Russia. It wouldn't necessarily be enthusiastic support, but there is mass support. Why? Because the Russian people don't like NATO, don't like American imperialists, and they hate them as a matter of fact, and they're prepared to fight to, uh, if necessary, to deal with them. By the way, this is not a war between Russia and the Ukraine. This is a proxy war between Russia and the West, between Russia and American imperialism in particular. And American imperialism will decide. Zelensky will decide that. Zelensky decides nothing. Nothing. It's the Americans that decide everything. They supply the arms, the money, the guns. They keep the whole thing going. What are the, but yes, but what are the war aims of America? That's the point. Not the same as Zelensky. Not the same as uh, Liz Truss and the Brits and the Polish idiots. No, 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 no. They're not that stupid. They're pretty stupid, but they're not that stupid. You know, no, 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 no. The aim is to exhaust Russia, prolong the war as much as possible, to exhaust Russia militarily, undermine it militarily, financially and economically, ruin the Russian economy by sanctions, and, and so on. That's the aim. That's, uh, to bleed it dry. That's the idea. And if this means prolonging the war, uh, and many Ukrainian innocent people, that's the, I feel sorry for the poor Ukrainians. They don't know. They're the, the pawns of American imperialism. Uh, if it means a lot of people are going to die, so what? So what? It's all in the good cause, isn't it? To undermine Russia, this terrible, uh, terrible Russia, terrible Putin, you know? That's, that's, the, that's the idea that they have. Now, but of course, there's limits to how far this is going to continue. Definite limits. They say that the, the argument now is that the, the Ukrainians, the Russians rather, are running out of weapons. Not true. Russia's not running out of weapons or ammunition. They've just shown this recently. They might be running out of, uh, uh, of the high, what they call it, the uh, very uh, accurate uh, missiles, modern missiles. They, they run sort of them. But that's, they don't need those to conduct the war as it is. And therefore this war, this terrible bloody war is going to continue until something happens. But I predict now, I predict now as night follows day, at once, at some stage, Zelensky is going to receive a phone call. I'll predict this now. He'll receive a phone call from Washington saying, look, Mr. Zelensky, very sorry. Time is up. Credit is up. Do you know how much the, 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 these arms have cost the United States so far? $18 billion, a lot of money. And there are complaints. That are, there are, you wouldn't read it on the front page, but it's there. There's plenty of uh, indications of that. Let me see if I've got the, yes, here we are. Pub, uh, public opinion in the States, for example, indicates the New York Times on May, even as far back as May, said, Americans have been galvanized by Ukraine's sufferings, but popular support for the war is far from, a war far from U.S. shores will not continue indefinitely. That's the New York Times. It goes on. Inflation is a much bigger issue for American voters than the Ukraine and so on and so forth. So, I think it's the figure was given. I will just finish that on that point. A recent poll pointed out that 57% of likely voters were strongly or somewhat strongly support the U.S. pursuing diplomatic negotiations as soon as possible to end the war in Ukraine, 
even if it requires Ukraine making compromises with Russia. And at the end of the day, Ukraine will be forced to make compromises with Russia. But anyway, we will have to see. It's a moving picture. We'll have to see how it develops. In the meantime, this war has had profound effects on international relations. It has driven China to form a closer alliance with Russia. They are now in a firm alliance. They keep on predicting that it's going to break up, but it will not break up. China, China is quite firm in its support for Russia. Others, other former nations they thought would be like India, for example. India's got very good relations with Russia because they get cheap oil, which has considerably annoyed the Americans. No, no, and the Americans protest that the Indians say, yes, very sorry, but uh, we need the oil kind of thing. Even Saudi Arabia, you know, which was obviously a solid ally of the U.S., recently reached a deal with Putin. The Americans were putting pressure on the Saudis to increase the production of oil in order to bring the price of oil down. They refused. Instead of that, instead of that they cut oil production in order to force the price, to force the price up, which considerably annoyed the Americans, but to no effect, and so on, and so on. And therefore, we are seeing like a kind of shift. What's the word they use in geology? What's the, what are these? Yes, a shift of the tectonic plates. This is, this is bringing about a realignment on an international scale, which also will introduce new instability. Now, I think I've said enough about the objective side. What are the implications for us? What are the revolutionary implications? Because they are profound revolutionary implications. And we've got plenty of evidence of this. For example, in Sri Lanka. That's very interesting. If you want to see what a revolution looks like, of course you can read Trotsky's uh, History of the Russian Revolution, a marvelous book. Take a close look at, at Sri Lanka. And the interesting thing is that this popular uprising, not long ago, came from nowhere. That's the main point, the first point to make. Like a thunderbolt from a clear blue sky. Nobody was expecting this. I wasn't expecting that, to be honest. But the conditions were so bad, so intolerable. They reach a, there always reaches a point where the masses say, that's enough. No more. Not prepared to put up with this anymore. You've, it's, it, it's ended. And by God, they although facing ferocious repression, because this was, in effect, it was a dictatorship. A ferocious regime. People were killed. and so they make, didn't make any difference. And that's the, that's the danger point for any reactionary regime. When the masses lose their fear, you see, how often have you heard, you hear these miserable reformist imbeciles, you know? Oh, you can't have a revolution because look, they've got the, the, the state and the army and the police and the, they got all the weapons, they got all the guns, and we got no guns. How, how can you talk about a revolution like in Russia? Really? Did the people in Sri Lanka have guns? They didn't. Did the French people in 1789 have, have guns? No, they took it off the back to Bastille. They raided the Bastille with their bare hands and they tore it down and they took the weapons. You know, the masses have never got the weapons. You use that stupid argument and there would never have been a single revolution in history, but there have been many revolutions in history, as we know. And look at Sri Lanka. You know, without, listen, without a party, without a leadership, without a clear program, with no arms, they stormed the presidential palace, and they took it. They over overwhelmed the, the, the police and the army, and they took it. Sections of the police and army came over to them. Army officers, a colonel, I remember, was, was driving around in an army vehicle, and they were waving uh, revolutionary slogans and so on and so forth. They took... Now, what does this show? What does this show us? What does it prove? It proves only one thing. If you leave this meeting tonight and you don't remember anything of what I've said, I will not be offended, but don't go away forgetting one thing about Sri Lanka. What does it prove? I'll tell you. It proves, my friends and comrades, that there is a power in society that is stronger than any army, any police force, or any state. And that power is the power of the masses. Once they're mobilized, and on the move to take power into their own hands. Yes. And that was that was shown. That was shown.
That was so. But, but here, here's the tragedy. Here's the tragedy. That's only one side of the equation. There's another side of the equation also. You see, in Sri Lanka, power was lying in the streets waiting for someone to pick it up. Simple as that. Power was lying in the street. And all that would have been required, it makes you weep when you think about it, is one courageous voice to say, right, government is gone, the president has fled, we are the government, we take, take the power. And, and that would have been it, an appeal to people all over the island to also to take power into their own hands. In local administration, factories, and army barracks, everywhere. One courageous word. But that courageous word, tragically, was never spoken. And the masses, therefore, having power in their hands, they had power in their hands, they allowed it to slip through their fingers like water. The initiative then passed to the reaction, and now you've got the situation that you have. In Sri Lanka, it won't last forever. The, the revolution will reemerge, of course, but uh, it will take time now. You can't waste an opportunity like that without consequences. That's really, And what are we talking about here? You see, and so many times this has happened, and it continues to happen. This one factor that is missing, every factor was present. Every single factor for a successful revolution in Sri Lanka was present, except for one, what we call the subjective factor. The revolutionary leadership, the revolutionary party and the revolutionary leadership which led the, the Russian works to power in 1917. And therefore, the opportunity was lost. That is an unpalatable truth, my friends, but it is a truth nonetheless. And the conclusion is, that we must draw, is that without the correct leadership, revolution can only succeed, we will say, it can only, I will choose my words carefully, it can only ex succeed with extreme difficulty, because after all, in the Paris Commune, they didn't have a leadership, really speaking, but then also they were defeated for the same reason. It can only succeed with great difficulty, or most often of all, it cannot succeed at all. And that's the main lesson that we have to discuss. And this is not an isolated event. We have now the situation in Iran. Again, what does it show, for goodness sake? Open your eyes, what does it show? It precisely shows that there's revolutionary implications present in the situation everywhere. And for, moreover, it can come to the, to the fore at any time. Again, yes, I repeat, like, like a thunderbolt from a, blue, from a clear blue sky, that applies to Britain. It applies to France, it applies to Italy, it applies to Brazil, it applies to the United States of America, I would say that. One, uh, sooner or later. But that's not the point. That's not the point. The point is, when this occurs, Will there be a leadership ready and able to take advantage of the situation and guide it along the correct line? In this case, in Iran, you know, again, Hegel points out that necessity reveals itself through accident. What happened in Iran was an accident. This poor, poor young girl, this poor young Kurdish girl that was murdered, in effect, in the police station for a crime. What crime? Because she wasn't, not that she wasn't wearing the hijab, she wasn't wearing it correctly, beaten to death. Yes, but you see, that's happened many times in Iran. You think that was an isolated incident? How many times has that happened? How many women have been killed in this way in Iran? Many, many, many. And yet this time, you see the point, how quantity becomes quality. It's one step too far. It's one violent incident too, 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 too far. And therefore, it provoked this tremendous, inspiring movement. What a wonderful movement. Again, it should fill us all with the, the, the greatest admiration and inspiration and confidence in our class and in the youth, it spread like wildfire, and in the women, the girls, the most downtrodden oppressed section, not an accident, not just university girls and so on, but, but uh, school students removed their hijab and, and challenged the police. 200 people have been killed at least in classes with the police, and yet, it, and it still continues. It still continues to this very, to this very moment. And uh, the slogans, by the way, are very advanced. It's no longer, no longer a question of the hijab. It's no longer a question of that. The slogans that these young school kids, very young kids are shouting, is uh, down with the regime, down with the supreme leader. 
I mean, that's for the, uh, that's for the death penalty in Iran to say things like that. You'd be punish, punishable by death, but they say it nonetheless. What an inspiration for all of us. And yet, and of course, now this is different. This is the big difference. Because we've seen movements, all right, not quite in the same way. We've had big movements in the past in Iran. This has spread to the working class, and that's the, the factor that's been absent up until now. The mighty Iranian working class, which is the key to the revolution, not just in Iran, but in the whole of the Middle East. The oil workers, the teachers, many, many sections of uh, transport workers, bus drivers, and so on, in Tehran, on strike. Now, this moment, even the official oil, oil workers union, which has always been kept aloof, has, has been drawn into the struggle. And therefore, yes, this, this could, be, could be the beginning of a, of a revolution in Iran. It reminds me very forcibly of the situation just before the revolution in 1979. You had a similar situation existing. Will it go that far? I don't know. Can't tell. One thing you can say, it can't go on like this indefinitely. There's a limit to how far the masses can be on the streets, tackling the state, getting killed and beaten up and so on, without the result, you know. And therefore, we have to see. We have to see what will happen. But again, the question can be come back to the same question, which is really the central question that we should be discussing this weekend. That's this vital question of the subjective factor. Now, in 1938, Leon Trotsky made a statement. He said that in the last analysis, the crisis of humanity can be reduced to one thing, and that's the crisis of leadership of the working class. And that's true. It was true then. It's even more true today. And just look at the situation. Look at the situation. You see, the subjective factor is, is just as important in the class struggle as it is in war. There are many parallels, actually, between the revolution, which is a kind of war, and war between the nations. Many parallels. Now, here's a quite interesting point. How many times in the history of warfare has a, a large army composed of valiant, courageous soldiers been defeated by a far smaller force of trained professional troops led by good, efficient officers? How many times? Many times. Many times. You know. In other words, the subjective fact that leadership is vital. And if it's vital in war, it's also vital in the class struggle. And just look at the state of the... Uh, <laughs> of the subjective factor of the leadership of the working class. I will not speak about the right-wing reformists, the right-wing trade union leaders, the right-wing labor leaders, because they've long ago sold their soul to the devil. They've long ago abandoned any idea of socialism. Anything. They're agents, conscious, be sure of it, conscious agents of the ruling class who've infiltrated the labor movement only with one intention, to control it and to put it, to, to betray it, and to put it at the service of the ruling class. That's their sole role. They have no other role in, in society than that. On the other extreme, of course, you have ourselves, if you like, the revolutionary Marxists. And again, we have to be honest. For certain historical reasons, which I haven't got time to go into, objective reasons, the, objective fa the subjective factor of, of, of conscious, genuine Marxism, as opposed to the art, the, f the fake stuff, which is all too readily available, I'm afraid. Genuine Marxism, the forces of genuine Marxism have been thrown back. We have been thrown back by history, you know. That's an, and therefore, we're not in a position at this moment in time. We're not in a position to uh, effectively change anything in, in, in the objective situation. You can make important changes locally, you know. But, you know, uh, I wouldn't be too worried, by the way, uh, by, the, by the way, I wouldn't be too worried about, about, about size. Every, I've said this before, at the risk of being a bore, I'll repeat it. Every revolutionary movement in history always starts as a, as a small minority, as an insignificant factor. It's bound to. <laughs> you think about it, it's, it's, absolutely, it's inevitable. I mean, Jesus Christ started with 12, and, and, and one of those was no good. But uh, in, in the end, he didn't do too bad, did he? He didn't do too bad. But in any case, uh, to quote a more recent example, uh, 
the, the, the Bolsheviks, the, the Russian Marxists, I mean, there's a book, it's not a bad book, it's called Bolshevism, The Road to Revolution. Uh, it's by a, a promising young author. And if you read that book, you get, you get all the facts, so I won't repeat it. But it's clear there, I quote, I quote chapter and verse, that it started with very, very small, tiny groups, mainly of intellectual students and so on, studying uh, Marxist capital in Tsarist Russia. And yet, within a, a measurable space of time, they were able to take power. Now, and, and that, by the way, is because the subject which I'll end up on, and that's the power of ideas. But let's leave that to one side. Take the other elements. The Stalinists no longer exist as a serious force. In the past, they were an obstacle. Not anymore. They're finished, really. And the former Stalinist leaders, by, by God, they've degenerated to, to an extent which is, in the past, you'd think it was unthinkable. They become, in effect, the same as the, 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 the worst type of reformists. And then we come to another element, which is significant. The left reformists, okay? Now, that's more complicated. Because whereas the, whereas the right reformists, in, in most cases, are not trusted by the workers, and in many cases are hated by the workers, people like Starbucks are not trusted, because of the role that they played in... Uh, betraying and selling out and so Even so, they can still come to power for lack of an alternative. That's, and Starmer will come to power. The workers will have to go through that experience in order to learn, again, the realities of right reformism. But the left reformists, they're a bit different, you know. Uh, they talk left. Sometimes they can talk very left. You'd be surprised in the future how left they can talk. Yes, but you see, the trouble is with the left reformists, Talk, they talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk, as I think they say in the States. I don't like this American neolism, but they are. I think that's what they say. Uh, yes, take two examples. One from Britain and one from the United States. Take Jeremy Corbyn. Nice chap, nice man. Inoffensive, you know, doesn't beat his wife, he doesn't, be, doesn't kick the cat, doesn't swear, doesn't drink, and so on. Nice man. Means well. I've no, I've no doubt his intentions are, are excellent. But unfortunately, like all the left reformists, he was not prepared to go all the way, and he, he compromised. Now, but the, 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 take another example. Sanders in the United States, the same. The, same. But the interesting thing about Sanders and Corbyn is not themselves as individuals. It's, it's too easy to point to their, their um failings, if you like, and the limitations. I don't want to be too harsh on them because, I, I repeat, they're obviously very sincere persons. But a sincere reform is very often more dangerous than an insincere one. But never leave that to one side. The real significance of both Sanders and Corbyn is this. Immediately, they just made a few left-sounding radical phrases. Immediately, there was an explosion of support. Hundreds of thousands of people, millions in the case of, of Corbyn, were awakened to political life. Why? Not because of Corbyn being particularly clever or able. Not that, no, these people were looking for something. They were looking for a point of reference. And that's the whole, same thing with, with Sanders in the States. That's the point. Don't doubt it. Beneath the surface of apparent apathy, indifference, and so on and so forth, there's a seething anger in society, a seething discontent, right? Above all, there's a seething frustration because they don't find any point of reference. In Britain, for example, people despair. You know, well, you know look at this terrible position. We need to do something. Even the Tories, I think 40% of Tory voters say they're in favor of nationalizing the utility, utilities. The, the mood is there. Is anyone expressing this? Nobody's expressing it. But Corbyn, in a way, did express it. And, and Sanders expressed it. But yes, but in the final analysis, they prefer, preferred unity with the right wing and with the party officials, the party machine, rather than with their own base. Therefore, sad to say, it wasn't deliberate, but sad to say they betrayed the, 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 uh, the dreams, if you like of their followers, and now those movements have collapsed. Nothing, there's nothing, nothing left. Same could be said of Syriza in uh, Greece, of uh, Cyprus rather, and, and of, uh, of Podemos in Spain, the same thing. 
And therefore, this is the problem. Now, left reformism will emerge again. It will emerge again. It's not really, because there's nothing else. Because we're too weak, basically. We're too weak. And therefore, ultimately, we will have to enter into uh, agreements with them. Of course, we'll support them against the right. Be, be sure of it. We'll always support the left against the right wing, of course. We can enter into agreements and united fronts and so on and so forth. But we must do so critically. As Lenin said, when you, if you're in the united front, you keep one eye on the enemy who's in front of you and another eye on your ally who can betray you and, and leave, desert you at any moment in time. So you have to do both things. But it's not the kind of uh, stupid attacks of the ultra-left who insult people like Corbyn. We don't, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. In a friendly way, in a comradely way, in a positive way, we put forward our ideas, to use Lenin's expression that he put forward in 1917, patiently explain. Patiently explain. That's all you need to do because time now is on our side. Now we've got to finish because... I've run out of time. I mean, you can't see this, but the chairman is kicking me under the table. But anyway, I will take it up with him later. But uh, he's not really. But anyway, uh, I've run out of time, unfortunately. But you see, one thing that you must understand. Look, we, the international Marxist tendency, we're not a mass organization, far from it. We are building, we're having success, considerable success, I would say. But we've got a long way to go. We've got a long way to go. And the way to, to succeed is that we have to, we don't lecture the workers from the outside or the youth. You go, go along with them and you uh, experience the class, go through the experience and you explain and put forward the alternative in a patient and comradely manner, that's all. Because the, the difference is this. For a very long time, I've been in this movement for a long time, longer than I cared to remember. To be precise, 1960, I was still in school at the time, believe it or not. I was young and thin and handsome like you guys, you know. It was hard to believe, now I know, but there we are. Long time ago, okay. But, uh, you know, uh, I was like, what, what, what did I say? You've interrupted me now. You've, you've <laughs> no, I wasn't talking about that at all. <laughs> um, what was I going to say? Oh, yes. For most of my life, I, I and our tendency, we've been fighting against the stream. Okay? We're not worried about that. We're not worried about that. Ma, you know, at the end of his life, uh, Engels wrote in a letter, he said a wonderful thing. He said, Marx and I were in a minority all our lives, and we were proud to be in a minority. Yeah? Okay, that's what Engels wrote. I could say the same thing, okay? But we've been fighting against the steam. That's not a bad thing. Our forces, our comrades, have been strengthened and steeled in this battle, fighting against the constantly fighting against the, the, the stream. That's okay. But now you see, and that's the big difference, the tide of history that I mentioned at the beginning has begun to change. The tide of history, the current of history, is now beginning, comrades and friends, to flow in our direction. I've never seen in my life, I have never, I've seen all kinds of things. I've seen revolutions in character, more than one. And I've also seen counter-revolutions, more than one of them too. But I've never seen a situation in my life where particularly the youth, the young people, were more open to the ideas of Marxism and the ideas of revolution. Even without us being present, they've already drawn these conclusions. And therefore, we have, to, we have to reach these people. We have to reach them. Therefore, enormous possibilities. That's the lesson we must draw from all of this. The bourgeois pessimistic, let them be pessimistic, you know. And the, and the left reformists, oh my God. Oh my God. You know, I wonder why they don't commit suicide sometimes when they listen to Oh my God. It reminds me of a poem by Edward Lear. You know Edward Lear? How does it go? Uh, there was an old man of Cape... This is not a rude one, by the way. <laughs> there was an old man of Cape Horn who wished that he'd never been born. So he sat on a chair till he died of despair, that dolorous old man of Cape Horn. There we are, there's left reformism. <laughs> but anyway, I've, uh, we, we, so we're the only op optimistic ones because... We know, I know, I can see 
that the road is open now for Marxism, comrades. It's open in a way that it never was before. The possibilities are, are in the sky is the limit. The possibility it depends on us. It only depends on one thing. It depends on you. No, 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 no. Don't look at the person next to you. I saw that. Don't, don't look at it. It depends on you. Individually, you must assume your, respon your, your, your responsibilities before history, if you like. And I, I'll promise you one day. What I won't promise you is an easy life and an easy time. If you were looking for an easy life and an easy time, my friends, you were born at the wrong time of history. You should have been born some other time. Oh, no, no, no. This, these are going to be hard times. Hard struggles, hard fights, many fights, some victories, many defeats with these leaders. Be, be prepared for that too. Can't go crying because there's a defeat. A defeat. You, we must bear defeats with the same cheerful equanimity that we bear victories. You know, that's not a, a soldier's attitude because we are what? We are soldiers in the international army of the proletariat. Don't forget it. And one final word I'll, I'll tell you. We have one thing. We, don't, we, got, we haven't got the numbers. We haven't got the money. We haven't got a center yet. We will have one. Don't worry. Don't be, we, we're waiting for the property market to collapse, if you must know. <laughs> ha ha! You, you think the international treasury is stupid or what? <laughs> ah, yeah. No, but we haven't yet got a big center. We don't have millionaire backers like uh, Starmer. I see there's a millionaire supporter of the Tories just transferred to the Labour Party. You know, we, we, don't, we don't need that kind of... Uh, but we've got, you know, we've got one thing, one thing, which nobody else has got in the world, I guarantee it, I'm telling you. We have one thing, and it's a very important thing. It is the most important thing of all. It's the power of ideas. And Marx explains, ideas become a material force when they grip the minds of the masses, and that's beginning to occur. Our ideas will be... Uh, well received by millions in the future, but at the moment we will be satisfied with more modest targets. And therefore, one other, just one final remark. We must, these ideas are our weapons. They're our weapons. And if we're good soldiers, which I trust that we are, you keep your weapons clean and sharp. And that's the purpose of this weekend. Our enemies don't understand that. Leave them alone. They, they never understand ideas. They're idiots. They, know, they have no ideas. They leave them alone. No, 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 no. We spend this weekend discussing ideas, not to pass a pleasant uh, couple of days. We hope it will be pleasant and informative. Yeah, we hope that's the case. But in any case, that's not the function. What we are doing, my friends, is we are sharpening our weapons. We are sharpening our weapons for the class struggle which will take place, which is taking place, and we must learn to participate and use those weapons to the, to the best advantage, which I trust every single one of you will do. And that's the way, that's the only way in which our forces, the forces of genuine Marxism, will be built and will succeed. Well, I'm sure you'll agree that was a fantastic, insightful and inspiring talk. And if you are feeling inspired by the analysis and the perspectives that Alan put forward, then I would urge you to consider getting organised with the International Marxist Tendency, of which Socialist Appeal is the British section, educating yourself in Marxist ideas and fighting for revolution in our lifetime. If you'd like to find out more and get put in touch with a branch or a section near you, then head to the link in the show notes of this podcast to fill in our sign-up form. What's more, if you'd like to support the fight for socialism, you could consider taking out a subscription to the Socialist Appeal newspaper, which is available in both physical and digital formats. The newspaper is packed with news and analysis from a Marxist perspective, as well as articles on Marxist theory and the history of the working class movement. So that you can subscribe for as little as £2 a month, and all of that money goes towards supporting the fight for socialism. And if you'd like to support the work of our organisation financially, you could also consider setting up a donation or giving a one-off donation using the link in the show notes of this podcast. Any donation, big or small, helps us to build the forces of Marxism across the world. 
And finally, if you're in London on the 26th of November, you should definitely consider coming along to the book launch of Alan Woods' new book, Ireland, Republicanism and Revolution, where Alan delves into the lessons of Ireland's rich revolutionary history and charts the history of the struggle against the yoke of British imperialism and of the capitalist system altogether. This book is a central reading for revolutionaries, not just in Ireland, but also in Britain and of course across the world. So if you aren't able to make the book launch in London, the talk will be streamed online. So make sure you head to the link in the show notes of this podcast to find out more. And with that, we'll draw this episode of Marxist Voice to a close. Make sure you stay tuned for Friday's episode where we're going to be discussing cryptocurrency, speculation and the casino of capitalism. As always, thanks very much for listening to Marxist Voice, the podcast of socialist appeal.